Um, today I'm going to speak a little bit about precision agriculture or smart farming. And I don't want to assume that we're all up to date on the latest technological trends in United States agriculture. And so to make sure that we all have a basic understanding of what precision agriculture is, uh, before I start theologizing about it, I'm going to show a clip from a video that demonstrates a little bit about how smart farming works. There's, you, if you can watch this video, The Future of Farming, it's just, all of it's really fascinating. But for the sake of time, we'll move on. Um, so, okay, now we come to how Dr. Reichel's presentation yesterday made me question the entire premise of my argument. Um, so, <laughs> so, from how I understood their presentation, they claim that technology is neither good nor bad nor neutral. By claiming it's bad, we fall into an inevitability fallacy an alarmist mentality, and following an ethical judgment, the question then becomes, how will we cope with this? I realized in that moment that my presentation is alarmist and that the point of my paper is to make an ethical judgment about smart farming, and at the end, I ask the question, how will we cope with this? I do think we need to wrestle with how precision agriculture is practiced. A UN report released in August of 2019 named food production as one of the most catastrophic contributors to global warming. Industrial agriculture, as it is practiced now, generates a third of all greenhouse gas emissions, including more than 40% of methane that traps heat in the atmosphere. Our current food model just does not promote sustainability. Those supporting precision agriculture argue that it is the ultimate green technology that substitutes cloud computing for petrochemicals and produces data instead of soil erosion. If precision agriculture is actually the future of farming, we must ensure that this revolution doesn't continue the tradition of harm that previous iterations of agriculture revolutions have inflicted. So I employed two approaches, two approaches in examining precision agriculture in building an agrarian hermeneutic. I first used a biblical approach to give us a picture of what went wrong and a theological approach to orient ourselves towards hope. Both of these approaches build toward an agrarian hermeneutic. This means that the way that food is grown, harvested, and consumed reflects the health of the triadic relationship between God, humanity, and the land. If these three are in right relationship, an agrarian hermeneutic would argue that our food system would then promote the flourishing of all creation. Our current task is to consider whether, the, whether precision agriculture does promote the flourishing of all creation since industrial agriculture does not. First, I chose a biblical hermeneutic that illustrates what God intended for us and what went wrong. Genesis 3. According to Ellen Davis's rendering of the Hebrew, God commands humanity to work for or serve the soil as well as watch over, protect, or observe the land. Instead, Operating under the presumption that consumption would bring enlightenment, the humans consumed beyond the limits that were set for them. Instead of enlightenment, the only thing they discover is that they are naked. They experience an immediate desire to extract more natural resources around them in order to fashion clothes for themselves that they don't need. Once consumption is understood as the means to achieve some end, then a process of consumption becomes an all-consuming vocation. Humanity rejected God's intended vocation for humanity. God then lays out the consequences for this decision, a falling out of right relationship. 
Not a falling out with God, but a falling out with everything else, non-human creatures, the land, and each other. There's the curse for the serpent, which will drive a wedge between humanity and all non-human creatures. Second, God tells the woman that the man will rule over her, declaring that human relationships will now be marked by power differentials and hierarchies, a consequence of this decision to consume beyond their limits. Finally, God pronounces a fractured relationship between humanity and the land. It is the land that bears the cost of humanity's obsession with consumption, with degraded soil and languishing fields as active witnesses to humanity's destructive tendencies. If Genesis 3 presents overconsumption as the reason for the fallout of right relationships, what then would it mean for fractured ties between God, humanity, and the land to be healed? Although humanity's overconsumption has fractured relationships, it is through the incarnate Jesus Christ that right relationship between God and all materiality can be restored. We turn now to the second approach, what Niels Gregerson calls deep incarnation. Through deep incarnation, God is conjoining all creatures and enters into the biological existence, the biological tissue of creation itself in order to share the fate of all biological existence. God becomes Jesus, and in him, God becomes human, and by implication, foxes and sparrows, grass and soil. There is no material world which the embodied Christ is not present. With the incorporation of complex relationships between diverse creatures, we can understand God's very identity as the community of love who takes interests in the lives of complex creatures and incorporates this chaotic community of creation into a loving divine embrace. This creates the possibility of what Gregerson calls an embodied eschatology, a more spatial or community-based form of eschatology in which it is the social bonds of continuity more than the fate of isolatable individuals that is the concern for resurrection. Accordingly, the subjects of eternal life are subjects in continuity with others. In order to actualize an embodied eschatology, there must be communities in which spiritual bodies, humans, plants, soil, rabbits, can flourish. All of these things can flourish, as we cannot flourish alone. As eschatology is, always, is already always in the process of making, and yet is still in the future, flourishing communities and thriving places and spaces are important foci for reflection upon eschatological hope. The vocation of Genesis 3, to promote the flourishing of the earth and all that is in it are brought together again through our understanding of an embodied community-based eschatology. So finally, at last, I'm going to return back to the question of whether precision agriculture is a step toward or away from humanity's intended vocation to protect and care for the land through deep embrace. Is precision agriculture, which is situated as the next phase in industrial farming, poised to perpetuate fractured relationships or be part of the mutual embrace of humanity, land, and God. Let us now consider John Deere, the largest, <laughs> it's quite the switch, um, it's the largest agriculture, agri agriculture machinery producer in the world, which has been at the forefront of the big data agricultural revolution. John Deere has released several IoT, or Internet of Things, products that can connect its equipment with each other. The sensor is incorporated onto all their farm equipment, collects information about the composition of soil in real time, which is called big data soil, big soil data, excuse me, 
And this, they combined this with historical data and weather predictions, or big weather data, and stores all of this information in the cloud. This information, which farmers can access on an online platform called myjohndeer.com, instructs produce, producers about which crops to plant and even which variety, where and when to plant, and later when and where to cultivate. Similarly, photographing these plants helps determine whether the plant is a crop or a weed. Near-infrared allows you to see the health of the cells in the plant and examines the chemical content of the soil, all of which is then subsequently uploaded into the cloud. Farmers can then access all of this information season after season. They can use hard quantitative data to improve their yield year after year. Farmers on their smartphones with the big soil data and big weather data in their hands plug in different seeds and receive as output before planting seeds has even commenced and find out what their likely yields will be for that season. Although farmers have access to the information stored in the cloud, they do not own this information. So to understand the implications of this, I invite you all to walk with me through a scenario. My name is Farmer Emily. I need a new tractor, preferably one with sensors that I can connect to all my other John Deere devices, kind of like a smart home, but it's like a smart farm instead. So I go to my local John Deere dealership. I purchase a tractor, bring it home, and then use it. After a few months, that tractor breaks down. The problem has something to do with the software in its brain, but I'm a farmer and I've never been specially trained in how to deal with this. Coding isn't my specialty. So I take it to my tech-savvy friend, Benedict. And so now, because I've taken this to him, we are both liable for copyright infringement. Why? As it turns out, neither this tractor nor the information it has sent to the cloud about my land actually belongs to me. Instead, I find out that in 2015, John Deere wrote a letter to the US Copyright Office stating that farmers don't own the equipment they buy from the company's dealerships but they received an implied license for the life of the vehicle to operate the vehicle. If I don't want to be sued and put out of business, I have to take my tractor to a John Deere approved technician, which is significantly more expensive. In the past, when my tractor broke down, I could just take it to my neighbor down the street and she could help me fix it. But now I can only go to John Deere. I'm driven further away from the communities that I was once bound to. I'm isolated and now can only purchase products from John Deere. They own all of my equipment and all of the information about every material part on my farm. A year from now, at the beginning of the next season, a new line of Agrobots was released. An Agrobot right here. And this will help me crop, weed, fertilize, and harvest all on its own. This Agrobot will reduce my fertilizer cost by 99.9%. I don't think that I can afford it, but then the government just enforced new environmental regula regulations that required me to purchase this Agrobot. So I take out a loan and I purchase it. A few months later, something went wrong. I can't afford John Deere's technician and I don't know how to fix this, so it sits and collects dust in my barn. I end the season in debt and begin the next one in debt. The median farm income in 2017 for farmers was negative $1,325. Farmers have the highest rates of suicide over any profession, and the CDC suggests possible causes, including social isolation and potential for financial losses, 
both of which are being exacerbated by the way that corporations are weaponizing big data against small farmers through precision agriculture. And to be clear, farmer independence was already shrinking before the advent of precision agriculture, and so maybe I am being alarmist, but frankly, when the stakes are this high, I think we ought to make ethical judgments about big data, or at the very least, how corporations are using big data and weaponizing that data against farmers. So for the remainder of the presentation, I'll make theological and ethical judgments about John Deere's intellectual property regime. <laughs> so <laughs> how does John Deere's practices fit into our understanding of deep incarnation? John Deere seeks to own all material reality. They gather information from the soil to the genetic makeup of the plants and animals into its corporate body in the cloud. But deep incarnation brought all material existence into the body of Christ. God is the ground of information and complexity or the information resource that contains all of creation. The incarnation is information that reacts, responds to, and absorbs biologic processes in the material realm. God has taken up all of material existence into God's own divine being, into a divine embrace. Whereas the cloud takes up this information about all materiality and translates it into ones and zeros. Where God redeems this land through embrace, the cloud spits back data to its users, telling them how they can most efficiently extract from the land. But is precision agriculture truly the most sustainable way forward? As a quote stated earlier that I cited before, smart farming is considered the ultimate green technology that substitutes cloud computing for petrochemicals and produces data instead of soil erosion. Data uploaded to the cloud is full of ones and zeros, and somehow this is thought to be untethered from the material constraints of reality, untethered from the material constraints that complicate the rest of the world. But in fact, there's actually nothing clean about the cloud. If the cloud were a country, it would have the fifth largest electricity demand in the world at more than 700, 700 kilowatts. And the source of that energy, there's nothing clean about it. The antivirus software firm McAfee calculates that the electricity required to transmit the trillions of spam emails sent annually is equivalent to the amount required to power more than 2 million homes in the United States and produces the same greenhouse gas emissions as over 3 million cars. Big data is not immaterial. The cloud is not untethered from reality or untethered from matter for that reason, for that, for that matter. Even the storing of data in the cloud itself is extractive. As long as we rely upon corporations who promise technological advance through an extractive food industry, creation will not flourish. There are glimmers of hope, however, for how the advent of big data can help communities and relationships flourish. For example, a community called FarmHack is a worldwide community of farmers that build and modify their own technological tools. These farmers take parts of old tractors and build new technology with it. These alternative communities seek democratic control of foodscapes that don't violate ecosystems limits. They empower communities to define the scope of their goals and respective food worlds. These communities are actively resisting the temptation to extract and instead focus on connecting what is already around them, intentionally seeking to make a different decision than the ones that the first humans made in the Garden of Eden. 
Big data has already changed the fabric of how our foodscapes function. Now I argue that we have an ethical imperative to consider to what end we use big data. So if the end is to produce more and more, ultimately precision agriculture will be extractive. If we want to work toward an embodied eschatology, we need a paradigm beyond consumption. We see a model of this in the free and open software movement that, food, that farm hack encourages. This movement, I believe, demonstrates how our food system could be reflective of God's divine embrace of the entire material world. So maybe to return to Dr. Reichel's question, we should ask not how will we cope, but instead how will we resist? How will we, how will we resist extraction and consumption as vocation? How can humanity live most faithfully in the midst of a big data climate changed world? This is the task for theologians to seek creative alternatives that reject consumption as the vocation of humanity and promote an equitable, connectional food system that encourages the flourishing of all creation. Thank you.